Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, a partner in the Dillon Law Group, social media legend and free speech enthusiast. When I started the Coleman Nation podcast in the spring of 2021, its focus was on free expression and censorship on the internet. But as important as that subject is to me, which is very important, I felt hemmed in in the podcast. I wanted to spend more time talking to the interesting people I've met in my legal and free speech work without feeling a need to have them all make the same point. So I culminated the first series of the podcast and have started the second series. I hope you'll enjoy these conversations as much as I have recording them. Hi, culminators. Come into the room once again, sit down with me, and let's learn something together. I learned something very interesting over the last couple of weeks that I didn't know, which was that someone had taken a book that someone had taken a, 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 a actually, actually a series of um, ideas that uh, look, I'm a little bit of a student of history. It should have been my major. And I had this really uh, idealistic concept that instead of majoring in what I loved, I would major in, I, I, I would punish myself <laughs> and, and major, major in, uh, something that that I would learn from. I'm not sure I was wrong, by the way, because I do think you can learn a lot, learn and read a lot of history, and be very satisfied if you're not going to go into academia anyway. I majored in economics, and you know, as I've said before, I ended up with a, a football player average that I was entitled to. But I do think it 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 did introduce uh, a welcome amount of um, discipline into my mind, nonetheless. I have for years been objecting to the idea that well, this whole colonialism thing, let's put it this way, it has never been more uh, relevant. That much we can say, because what we see now is that, it, I, listen, I'm getting ahead of the interview here. <laughs> Oddly enough, I was poking around um looking for trouble on Amazon of all places. Uh, as one does. And I won't, I'm not even sure I was looking at books. And you know, like all good algorithms, uh, Amazon wants to guess at what you want so that it can make a sale. And and this popped up. Not stolen, the truth about European colonialism in the new world. Uh, now, of course, being a revanchist, I didn't buy the paperback because uh, I have nothing to do with my money but burn it. Um, but I did buy the book. And as soon as I bought it, um, as soon as I got it, I showed it to Mrs. Coleman. I mean, just to give you a sense of where I'm coming from. Uh, this is a tweet that I have now repeated every year for the last several years on Thanksgiving. Thank God every day for the European settlement of North America, for all its brutalities and injustices. In other words, for all its consistency with historic human endeavor, a godly America is still mankind's last best hope. You can just imagine what people think of that. Well, here's someone who wrote the book, and I, and I welcome the author of Not Stolen, Jeff Finn, Paul, F-Y-N-N, -N, hyphenated name, 
but he is American. He's American, but he teaches in the Netherlands. So he'll tell us his story and we'll talk about his book and what's going on culturally in the United States over this colonialism, colonialism business. Professor Finn Paul, thank you for joining us. How are you? Thanks so much for having me on, Ron. Doing great over here in the Netherlands. Uh, yeah, I'm an American in exile in the city that the pilgrims originally came from, Leiden, actually. So it's kind of a reverse, uh, I don't know what you want to call it. <laughs> well, that's actually a, a, an interesting point. I hadn't I, I hadn't made that association. You know, mm. we actually, we, and we talk a lot about pilgrims and, um, uh, and Puritans in my house because... Uh, my wife is from New England, hmm. and she she does some teaching from time to time, and we talks about the Puritans, and we're both the children of immigrants. So, as until fairly recently, children of immigrants have tended to be very grateful hmm. for for the land in which they now live. Um. And it turns out that uh, we, I, I showed this book to Jane, as I actually was saying in the, in the introduction, and she was just swept, swept up by it. And there was something in particular, and I knew that she would, that she would be, and there was a, um, a passage in it. There it is. Yes, I, I that that she just fell in love with and I helped her format it. And it's interesting that this is what she that seized on. Starting with Columbus, what did he really think of the Indians? Not what the left would have you believe. They had to cherry pick and rearrange quotes from his journal to make it come out their way. Um, so, so Jane tweeted this. It was actually um, after Shabbos this last weekend. And then, and there's my good friend, Dr. Lenahan and somebody apparently along the way um, tagged Matt Walsh and he retweeted Jane's tweet. And if, now, the only reason I know that is because Jane made it very clear to me that she is not suggesting to anyone, much less to me, that... Um, Matt Walsh follows her, and I, I'm, he's a super <laughs> influential guy. I'm not, I'm not going to find the tweet, but he said, "Wow, someone, someone wrote this book. I'm going to buy it. I can't. And I'm really, I'm really looking forward to, to reading it." Um, and you, then, and now the fact is, I had before I got the book, I started looking around and searching for your name, and I noticed a couple of things. First of all, not too many people are talking about the book. Surprisingly, the New York Review of Books isn't talking about the book, and the New Yorker is not talking about the book. Mm. Um, on the other hand, um, I noticed that it seems to be right down the middle of, a, of an argument that conservatives should really be interested in. I think... It, in the course of preparing for this, um, I I came upon a very well balanced, I thought, article from, from the pamphleteer in Nashville, which is which is a conservative, it's conservative publication, um, 
Um, and in November, they reviewed the book. They liked it, and they made a very nice point. Uh, Finn Paul is not an apologist for American atrocity. He's a realist. Now, that is sometimes a charged word in the culture wars. Uh, dedicated to putting such blunders in their proper historical context. What I see is that the time for read, for, for opening up the discussion about colonialism is extremely ripe, not only because the guilt of, um, um, of European America, or whatever you want to call it, has overwhelmed our traditional sensibilities, but also because in the, in the, in the Middle East, we're learning that the, the state of Israel is a colonial occupation. Um, no other states in the Middle East are colonial occupations, only the state of Israel, which is, you know, if you don't, if you don't know any history, is a very appealing <laughs> formulation. And you picked up, boy, this, I, is he going to ask this guy any questions? You picked up the Matt Walsh tweet and you noticed a little bit of attention that you were getting and you noticed, and I think you tweeted on what was Sunday morning for us, that um, maybe there's a little bit of interest being sparked again in the book. Did you now, Did you have to publish this yourself? Oh, no. I mean, this is done through uh, Bombardier, which is a division of Simon & Schuster. Okay, good. Because I hadn't heard of Bombardier, but someone had mentioned that to me and it didn't sound right. All right, so yeah. so... That's that's already something, right? You didn't. Yeah. Because... And I was lucky. I was picked up by Prager U and Dennis Prager has been helping to promote the book. So we've gotten actually millions of views on the videos for that. So the book actually started out with a bit of a bang, but it didn't get picked up by as many conservative outlets as I would have liked, as you as you've noticed. So yeah, I'm, so I'm... we're starting to get a bit of a second wind, and I'm sure appreciating that. Well, I certainly hope so, and, and you know. Um... If culmination is in any way a stepping stone to attention from the Daily Wire, then I think everyone will 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 be um, better off for it. What mm. I so in the process of preparing for this, I also came upon um, a an unhappy review mm. in 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 a not particularly surprising place. In foreign policy, the the very home of uh, the you know globalism, and this apparently is you know the the official statement from the establishment. Yeah, and you could pretty much you can pretty much guess how it goes. Um, Thomas Lecac is um, a history professor at a some school that I'm not familiar with that in and of itself is meaningless. Um, what I learned from this, though, is that you are a medieval, that your background is in medieval history. Yes. Originally, it was in late medieval Spain. And then I started doing the early modern Spanish empire. And from there, especially ah, because the Dutch are very into global history. I've now started editing a book series in global history and just kind of expanded to the, the big broad picture, the, the big picture uh, of things in history. Well, you know, I, I was recently reacquainted with the with the, the the idea. Well, first of all, look, I live in New Amsterdam, right? Well, New Jersey. We've got plenty of Dutch place names uh, here mm -hmm. in northern New Jersey as well. 
And um, I was reading a book about Allied intelligence in the Pacific War. Mm -hmm. And I was reminded, and the issue of the, the, the tension between Roosevelt and, and Churchill on colonialism is a, is a theme that comes up frequently. Um, but then you're reminded that the Dutch had colonial interests in the Far East as well. Mm -hmm. We forget that that there was a time when Holland was such a, was such a big player. So, yeah. of course, they don't forget it where you are, I guess. No, no, no. The Dutch don't forget <laughs> Indonesia and Suriname and and uh, New Amsterdam either. Oh, but then again, you know. Also, I went to I so I, I went to Princeton, which has these historic ties with the House of Orange, um, and where I studied under Peter Brown and and William Jordan. Hmm. And I, you know, I told you I I, I took a lot of uh, medieval history. Um, so that that's how you get to the colonialism era because Spain was the you know there was there was a moment where they were the best at it absolutely the best exactly and uh, you said you studied economics I'm also an economic historian and oh. so I think this sets me apart a little bit from my colleagues because I uh, I look to for... understand economics let's start there. <laughs> And so I look at facts, figures, graphs, and they say this bad thing happened. And I say, all right, let's quantify it. How bad was it? And that already puts me on a different level of analysis. That that's that's interesting, especially because one of my I won't mention him because it's not it's not in praise that I'm going to speak. One of my other close history professors, one of the other history professors that I had a nice relationship with in college described himself to me as a Marxist. Mm -hmm. And that probably is predominant in the field. Very normal, yeah. Marxism, of course, is intended as a theory of political economy, yeah. but it utterly disregards the laws of economics. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and I have many colleagues, I teach some economics, I have a lot of colleagues trying to teach economics without supply and demand. You know, I mean, how well, that, you... that was what I was uh, when you said, give me stats. What I thought you were going to actually start with was give me why you think, because what people don't understand is that economics, especially on the theoretical level, but but also as it plays out in, uh, you know, uh, empirically, economics is a study of behavior and incentives. Farm, you know, far, far more, you know, than anything else, and and it's a paradigm for measuring and predicting behavior in the light of incentives. And there is this tendency, and I, I noticed this also in World War II history. Uh, I saw a very good debunking of that. Um, people don't appreciate just how badly the German economy was run as a result of the central planning by the Nazi Party. They had, they just had no idea what they were doing. And they drove, you know, there's just, there's a lot of confusion about that. So you've obviously have, you have all the makings of someone who is absolutely primed to be hated by all the right people. Yeah. And yet you, the book didn't pose enough of a threat to go beyond the kind of, uh, you know, um, moldy confines of foreign policy as, as, as a threat to the world. What do you just, just one of those things you think? 
Well, I mean, on Twitter, I had a couple million people get angry when I tweeted the book cover, you know, so there has been reactions. I mean, now I think the, the Twitterverse is calmer than it was two years ago, but I have had quite a lot of people angry and um, certainly thousands of academics tweeting, uh, you know, uh, nasty emojis at me, that kind of thing. Uh, so there, there has been a definite reaction against, but so far with the publication, we haven't seen concerted attacks yet. They may be coming. Um, well, and and also, you know, if 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 indeed there is a bit of a, a an, an uptick in interest in the book, because there, again, there there is this current events relevance. Um, you to a large extent i mean i think the most important thing and and i think that that re positive review from the from nashville that i quoted gets at this the the cultural moment right now is utterly ahistorical it's full of value judgments that in no way refer to any meaningful understanding of human history either historical either ancient or antique or even modern yeah well i mean the 1619 project is a, a case in point i mean they're intentionally in the in the opening paragraphs they say we want to rewrite the narrative of american history to make slavery the central focus or fulcrum around which all of american history revolves that is purely ideological. It's going back to the 1960s, you know, with this kind of Marxism, except in this case, it's a sort of Black Pantherism re resurgent again. And it's all about making your ideological hobby horse the center of everything, when as any historian worth their salt should know, history is a complex uh, process where there's multiple variables. It's never all dependent on one variable. Well, but not only that, I mean, I think Sean Wilentz has demonstrated going against his ideological grain. He simply, you know, having written a book with the that that was premised on the entirely opposite hypothesis, which yeah. is that it has been that that um, uh, the 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 abolition of slavery has been baked into. The American founding since go, yes, and that slavery and and slavery, as you point out in the book, is hardly a North American or invention, or an American or even a European invention. Absolutely not. Um, but that it was actually, in other words, his point is that it was uniquely American. It was uniquely American, um, notwithstanding the struggles that the country had to go through to 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 get to that point. Um, to recognize that slavery what what was a was obviously a problem. But let's not let's go back to the colonialism issue. Mm. Let's just you know, let's just put it out there. Was the colon was the colonial enterprise in North America better, worse, or more or less the same as what we might? Well, I don't even know what you would what you would compare it to. Um, what indeed would you compare it to? I, I mean, certainly not 
you can't say to Muslim co colonialization of, of North Africa or North Africa or Europe uh, or um, give me give me the, the 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 elevator pitch for the book. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to colonialism in general, I mean, if you want to compare it, you could possibly compare it with Islamic expansion along uh, the uh, Indian Ocean littoral, which happened right around, you know, right as the Europeans were expanding across the Atlantic, actually. So in the 1400s, 1500s. Uh, so the Muslims actually colonized and spread their religion all throughout India, Southeast Asia, Indonesia, and all down East uh, Africa. That was actually quite similar um, to what the Europeans eventually did. But the Europeans, when they started out, the Spanish and the Portuguese were planning on making little trading forts along the African and Indian coasts. And basically, that's it. They only went there to trade. They never dreamed they would be able to conquer all of Africa. And in fact, the Europeans didn't even try until the 1870s. So, I mean, it's you know hundreds of years later. So in the New World, the Spanish and Portuguese did the same thing. They were expecting to create little trading forts and stepping stones. Then they kind of accidentally conquered the Aztec Empire. Cortes was like the world's luckiest man. We can maybe talk about that later. Uh, but that has to do with the fact that the Aztec Empire was several thousand years behind, technologically speaking, than the Muslims uh, or, or other places in the Old World. Um, also, the fact that the natives all died off from disease because they had been isolated, over 90% of the casualties we see in the New World were from disease. Uh, that weakened population levels in the New World and made it easier to move in. But the, Spanish, uh, the French and the English also came to the East Coast and thought that they would basically only ever be dotting little uh, trading forts or minor settlements along the coast. Remember, as late as 1763, they made this proclamation line, the British did, and they said, we're never going to move west of the Appalachians. So the idea that they arrived with the intent of removing Native Americans, heck, most of the continent was still in Native American hands till 1830. Now, so much... this was not a plan. It, it just happened ad hoc. Do you think intent even really matters that much? Well, I mean, if we're judging today, today's ideologues want to judge in terms of morality. And, right. you know, they want to say, all right, yeah, were you trying to, were you setting out to murder? Were you setting out to kill? And when you look at the historical sources time and time again, almost nobody, certainly almost no authority figure was setting out to, to murder people. On the other hand, I suppose the argument would be but, right, but when murdering them became necessary, f f then there was no hesitation about it. It was the the the, the native uh, residents here were 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 completely expandable. Well, I mean that's another thing. You look at Thomas Jefferson's letters uh, around the time he was president, and he says we have to keep on good terms with the natives. Eventually, I would like to purchase most of their land because they don't need it to farm. Uh, hunting and gathering is done. He said when we, when they turn to farming, they need about one one thousandth as much land as they do as hunter gatherer. So Jefferson was definitely not into the idea of exterminating people. And even when we look at the Trail of Tears, we see the U.S. Supreme Court um, uh, judged the removals to be illegal and told Jackson not to do it. He ignored them. 
people in Congress resigned. Davy Crockett was a congressman. He resigned in protest against the removal. Emerson and other intellectuals wrote furious letters against it. So when you say, yeah, Americans just exterminated them, you know, whenever they got the chance, whenever they got in the way, this was this caused the biggest public upheaval, the Trail of Tears removals that, that had existed in the United States up to that point. That says an awful lot of good things about American culture at the time, I would say. And, well, I suppose, that especially when you compare it to other, I mean, it's a little bit odd this, to consider colonial, the United, you know, the United States, by the time you get to Monroe, the United States is the dominant power in the hemisphere. Mm -hmm. It's, not really in a conquest mode anymore. I'm sure you have the Spanish-American War, but that's just another colonial power. Um, it's let's back up and talk about the the English. Talk about the Spanish. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the, the 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 inclination is more. Well, let's put it this way. I mean, th there are two different cultural things. The Spanish had, did either the Spanish or the, or, or the Spanish, is it true that both the Spanish and the English had, like like the Muslims, a religious mission in colonizing? Or, or, or was it different? Yeah. I mean, I think the Spanish in the 16th century, I mean, Queen Isabella, um, was definitely very Catholic. She wanted to spread Catholicism. Columbus was hoping to get to China and convince uh, the emperor of China of the righteousness of the of the Catholic way. But and, in some and, ways, that, and that was sincere. That wasn't just you know really something he was saying to impress Ferdinand. Well, okay. I mean, Columbus was was half and half. He was a salesman. So, I mean, I think part of him was sincere. He did believe in some kind of divine mission that he had been given. But he also knew where his bread was buttered and, and that it might help his cause if he espoused the, uh, I'm going to help convert the world. But I feel like the Spanish were so hard pressed by Islamic armies at this point that this was almost a desperate act trying to find allies across the world uh, because they were afraid that Christendom itself might, uh, might be smashed and that the Battle of Lepanto, a hundred years later, there was really a chance that the Christians were going to lose the whole Mediterranean. So. You know, this is this is the subcontext. So the Spanish, some of them did have this idea that they were going to convert the Indians, but the friars in Spain had learned after centuries of trying to convert uh, Muslims and Jews that conversion by force doesn't really work. So they were going to try to convert them by setting a good example. And it seems like in the Aztec case, this is actually what happened about 10 years after uh, Cortez's conquest. The English were mostly, they were religious nonconformists. There was no grand plan to convert the natives. Um, and they were basically happy to keep themselves more separate from the natives, actually. And that was more of a real, uh, more of a mercantile enterprise, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. That's what Jamestown was supposed to be. I mean, and also the Plymouth colony was supposed to be a trading, fishing, maybe tobacco growing. You know, they were trying to figure out something to do uh, there. Uh, at first, now it the well, it does appear that the Spanish, once they got an understanding of how much 
gold there was in in parts of South America lost their heads over it. I mean, this they went they went nuts over the gold. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's because they knew there was huge stockpiles of gold um, sitting in one place, and that did drive these adventurers to run out and try to try to grab the gold. And how did all that gold get in that one place? Well, that's the thing, because the Incan and Aztec emperors had assembled a lot of gold over the last 100 or 200 years. They were relatively new monarchies, but there was a lot of tributary people. They had done a lot of imperialism themselves, a lot of enslaving themselves, a lot of grabbing everybody else's gold. And so it was all in one place. Again, the main surprise is that Cortes even won, and he did so by enlisting many enemies of the Aztecs to work for him. He had tens of thousands of natives and only a couple hundred Spaniards um, with him, if he didn't have those tens of thousands of native allies, he never could have won. I think this, you know, going back to my point about the ahistoricity a, a of, the, of the colonial criticism, not, um, not only the, the, the moral context, you know, using, using today's moral standards to judge the conduct of people hundreds of years ago. Um, but also the the fact that imperialism was a like a universal way of life everywhere in the world. Of course. I mean it's it's pretty much always been that way. Your kingdom, you know, either expands or it is expanded upon. Uh that's always been. Yeah, I mean I was recently watching oh no I I was reading something where some child, some work of fiction, and some child says, "Why do there have to be all these wars?" And and you know, his his kindly guide says something along the lines of, um, "Well, some sometimes people just want to take things from other people." Mm. Well, that is true, but it is a little a little facile, yeah. you know. In Hebrew, the the word for war is milchama, the the root of which is lachen, which means bread. Which is an extraordinary association. Um, you know, war could very well be a matter of life and death. If somebody has crops or fields or arable land and you don't, and you've got to feed them, you just might have to look into the possibility of taking them. That doesn't make war or atrocity or slavery or colonialism inherently okay, but growing up in the post-World War II era where there's supposedly this stasis, which is also a lie. I mean, imperialism is an ongoing project all over the world still. Yeah, but I mean, I think that we finally in World War II got to this global level of technology where we were able to have basically a global hegemon. During the Cold War, we had two global hegemons. But then after 1989, it was really the U.S. for a while, but already that's disintegrating. Um, but we forget that anytime there isn't a policeman who monopolizes violence in a large area, everybody's going to be fighting. Somebody has to monopolize violence. And right now we take for granted that it's been the U.S. military. Uh, before that, the British Empire to a degree. Um, but in the absence of that, we get piracy and chaos. And, it's, it, and it is really extraordinary to see how empires inevitably 
not maybe inevitably, but so very frequently fall apart from within. Um, you know, the Ottoman Empire at the end of World War One was nothing. It was, it, and mm. and the British Empire was demonstrated in World War Two to be nothing as well. Yeah, the United States, unlike those two, had the wealth and the technology, and to a large extent, even a moral claim. Although I, you know, reasonable men can 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 differ, and, and I think this is an important point that we should talk about. Um, mm -hmm. To world leadership, at least, but internally lacks, and part of it is what you're writing about this 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 sense of guilt, this sense of of we don't deserve to be leaders, we don't deserve to be this well off. What we have. I mean, as an historian, where do you trace the roots of, of this idea that that um, uh, what is the word um, economic success and you know and dominance are something to be apologized for? Yeah, well, I mean, I'll start with the the uh, kind of opposite of that, which is why did the United States start to think that it was a, a great place? And I mean, every country thinks it's the best in some ways. I mean, there's some people who always say that rulers will push that idea. But uh, the United States had this claim because it was ruled by the people. It was a democracy. And also it had this claim to human rights, which developed during the Enlightenment, during the 18th century. I mean, we can trace it back much further in the Judeo-Christian tradition. But really, the 18th century, we start to see an expansion of human rights, even women's rights in the 19th century for the first time ever. Uh, then Black people are allowed to vote after the uh, Black men after the Civil War. So we see an expansion of the franchise where people actually are really taking part in society in a way that you never do in a traditional aristocratic society. So this is where I think the United States stakes a moral claim that until the last 20 years, almost everybody around the world kind of acknowledged tacitly one way or another that, yeah, maybe the States is kind of the best country in a moral sense. Um, but the roots of the doubt uh, stem from 19th century radical critiques. I mean, it was just Western free thought running amok in, in uh, it was crystallized in, in the works of Karl Marx and then his many followers. Um, and this was a radical critique of the West that said democracy is a sham, human rights don't actually exist. Um, even if it looks like democracy and capitalism are good, there's always two classes, an oppressor and an oppressed class, and most of us belong to the oppressed. Uh, and now the modern uh, critical race theorists have said, have turned the old class struggle thing into uh, anything you want, whether it's a race struggle, it's a gender struggle, a sexuality struggle. And so we see the traditional founding fathers of the United States put up as the oppressors and everybody else seen as the oppressed. So. But this really took off in U.S. campuses in the 1960s and 70s with the kind of high water mark of the of the new left. Uh, it died away and then it resurfaced again during social media when this became very facile, easy uh, way to to get a lot of clickbait and followers. That's now, how I think. It yeah. 
would you say that that us and them and you know uh it, it's it's all you know it's it's all a scam that there's no there's no democracy sort of uh can't um has a, a kind of a, a a weird echo now in the in the the deep state and globalism and in, in other words the a lot of things I see in my timeline on the right is it's all you know Obama's really running everything and our votes don't matter and I've been on the front lines. I I understand why people would indeed think that their votes don't matter. Uh, and I go to the courts and I sometimes wonder, why am I even bothering? And yet I do get up every day and do it because there is something that tells me that there is still some, there's still some possible way to effectuate change. But the polarity, the political polarity seems to have switched. It's a really bizarre, in other words, the overwhelmingly now, not on the fringe left, but on the sort of what we might call the electoral left, there's this phenomenal uh, trust in government and the state. Uh, is it is it merely because they've captured it or is something else going on ideologically? This is not really our topic as such, but you're you're living it and watching it as much as as much as I am. Yeah, no, that's actually a really good question. I mean, I know that, uh, you know, there's always been this distrust of the state on the right, and that has helped, um, you know, create splinter and fringe ideas that don't believe in democracy at all. Um, I mean, I think that there's a lot of people on the left still who really don't believe in the democratic process. I mean, I, I know so many students who call people liberals, but, and, and by that they mean you're somebody who believes in democracy. You believe in voting, and therefore you kind of tacitly accept capitalist reality. Uh, and so there's still lots of students who are further left of that and don't believe that we can make progress in a democratic society. And yet... Um, so, I mean, uh, we have made so much progress in terms of race relations, in terms of anything else that you might uh, consider um, uh, feminism, for example. Um, in the last 50 years, I think the evidence shows that democracy is working and progress is happening slowly, but not at the level that an 18-year-old may want to everything to change in two years. Is it possible you think that, I mean, I this is a a formulation that I frequently find myself raising. We're living in times of unparalleled prosperity. Yeah. No one within the borders of the United States, I don't care what the advertisers tell you, whatever, you know, whatever the, the NGOs are pitching, no one in this, in, in this continent needs to go to sleep hungry. No. If they do, it's for some sociological or some psychological or cultural reason but it's not because there's not enough food no and the amount of of stuff consumer goods that we just throw away every every day. this is unparalleled when the I mean, the british empire at its height was was still sitting upon a highly bifurcated society where there was a truly wretched underclass, the industrial developing, you know, proletariat that that bothered Marx so much. Uh, understandably, I mean, it was, a, you know, it, their, their lives were nasty, brutal, solitary and poor. Um, but that's instead what we have is an utter. Someone coined the term a while ago, this slack was the I mean, it's there's no tension in the system and maybe people are creating tension by 
I mean, I'm completely winging this um, by making it a, making it moral tension. We can't enjoy this prosperity because it's not ours. It's stolen. Let's talk about reparations. Let's talk about giving. Has anyone actually given any land, literally given any land back to any native tribes? Oh, in the last few years, they've definitely been winning court cases. Yeah. So there's there's been some of that going. They're on. winning but, court cases. In other words, they have they have claims. They're bringing mm -hmm. them in the in the colonial courts of the United States of America, mm -hmm. who which are then acknowledging those claims and that they're being, I guess, compensated in some way. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I mean, mean, to go back to this idea of uh, are we maybe just too prosperous? Well, I think so. I mean, I think in some ways when you get too prosperous, it, it just... Uh, it fosters uh, idleness in some ways. Um, and so it can lead to this kind of feelings of guilt and, and not really understanding what you do have compared to what people even two generations ago didn't have. I mean, one of my friends just went to Egypt and he said, in Egypt, the homeless people are actually skinny. And what you said is correct. In this country, that's not normally the case. And when I teach economic history, I say what Marx did wrong is he didn't trust in democracy enough within two generations of Marx's death. We mass enfranchised women within 12 years of that happening, basically, or 15 years, we had the New Deal. And I believe that the New Deal actually redistributed income in such a way it made mortgages possible. It helped people uh, you know, pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And we began to have a middle-class society. So after World War II in the US and Western Europe, uh, we created enough of uh, an equality amongst people that the middle class could become the dominant class. People weren't starving in the streets. If dad lost his job, you didn't all starve as a family anymore. Um, and now we all take this entirely for granted. And we forget how many steps it took to get there uh, and we also forget the difference between where we are and other countries was created by our own ancestors slowly going through this painful process. And we're threatening to destroy it all in, in, in a couple of years. It is, it is, uh, you know, just destruction is, destruction is easier and faster than building and construction. And this colonialism, would, would you agree that, that this, the, one of the engines of this colonialism obsession is a sort of nihilism of, you know, it, it's not working out for me. Not that I'm going hungry, because as we just said, can't say I'm going hungry, but I don't, I, I feel oppressed. I feel I'm unhappy. I don't like, I don't like what I, I don't like what I see in the mirror. That's my, frankly, um, yeah. therefore I'm going to punish everyone else. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think a lot of it is just academics who wish that their salaries were higher. And so they just they take the same angst they had when they were 18 and they keep writing it as adults. And so they they thought capitalism was bad when they were 18 because they couldn't get a good job or get high enough pay or whatever. And and they continue to do this throughout their lives. It's a very facile at, at base nihilist and very egotistical point of view or place that this is coming from. And now here you are speaking of jobs and you, you, you described yourself as uh, before we started recording, I think, um, as being in exile, uh, in, in Holland. Um, is it really the, I mean, was this the, just the best opportunity for you to, or do, was it really impossible for you to, you know, to be on a faculty, to do this kind of work on, on an American universal faculty of, of any quality? 
Yeah. Well, I was doing economic and financial history, and I was told by my professors, if you don't do the history of oppressed minorities, then you're never going to get a job. And I said, I want to actually- You're already a white male, so (laughs) you weren't going to get a job anyway. Exactly. And, And so I just went with what I thought was going to be the best, most valuable historical work that says the biggest picture things. I have books with tons of data. They've been highly praised. But- Um, I had to go to the Netherlands um, because the United States Academy was already so obsessed with its own little hobby horses. I didn't want to participate. And so, yeah, in some ways I am in exile because of that system. Basically pre-wokeness kind of, I I, I soured on it and it on me. I mean, we think of the Western European regimes as being ahead of the curve of the, of the, uh, compared to the U S in terms of progressive uh, you know, fuzzy headedness, but I, I think we've lapped them in yeah. the last year or so. I think so. In the last uh, decade, with the rise of critical race theory really coming from, and again, this kind of nihilistic, destructive sort of Marxist tendency, the Black Panther fringe really took over the United States. And in Europe, they're a little less likely to say our entire history was totally evil. In the UK, it's happening. Now, but in the continent, there's a little bit of a buffer. Well, I, I, I mean, of course, there's also the fact that you know, in it's a little. This is also a gross oversimplification, but in France, of course, if you know anything about ancient history or antiquity, all of France wasn't a, a country called France, and you know, until much, much, you know, much into the you know the modern era, but. We're French and we're here. Like we're we're French, and as far as any of us can remember, we've been French. America does have maybe even this this sort of um synthetic moral quality that we had by virtue of being an ideologically the first ideologically based republic. Yeah. Uh with it comes the, the ability to question validity because it's not we were we were we were always here so now let's figure out the best way to manage our affairs we weren't always here now i myself you know i'm descended as i said from from immigrants and you know none of my ancestors w- was here i always say i'm a, i am a native american i was born in queens which is in, in the united states of america it makes me as native an american as anybody anybody else and more than my mom um but Do you think there's anything we can learn from, you know, what what would be the message, the takeaway uh, from the, from the book or the experience with the book that can inform these struggles that you and I have been discussing over the last 35, 40 minutes? Yeah. Well, I mean, I try to remember the motto, e pluribus unum, right? Because the U.S., if it's a manufactured republic, it was manufactured around the idea that wherever you come from, you're going to adhere to American values once you get here. It's now easier now that the U.S. is not so overwhelmingly majority uh, white or European anymore to say, hey, wasn't this e pluribus unum basically just whiteness? Is that really what we're trying to get everyone to conform to? That's a conversation that I think is totally valid and worth having in some ways. But at the same time, you can't kill the goose that laid the golden egg. I mean, the United States is still the place 
which provides the highest living standards on earth. Basically, we have bigger houses than everybody else. We still have a better uh, you know, social uh, care system than most people do. Um, and lots of other good things besides. So it's great to talk about this, but again, you can't take your radicalism too seriously or you just end up burning everything down. It's like taking Noam Chomsky seriously, like some of his critiques are worth thinking about. But if you actually put his program into, into, uh, into practice, you would end up with riots and, and arson and looting and everything else. And you know, that makes me think of, I, I just tweeted a video I listen to videos on the way to work, but don't really need to see, you know, if someone's talking about what's going wrong with the Chinese economy. I don't really need pictures for that. <laughs> Every economy since I was growing up that was going to bury us yeah. has blown it. And it's, and it's not because of the Puritan work ethic or because of our racial composition. The Japanese couldn't keep it up. The Chinese are headed to a major economic meltdown uh, forget socialist countries, Europe. Okay. It's something I think also inherent in that, what I called synthetic, but really you could just as well call it man-made, um, system that enables us to have that prosperity. And, and that's the baby that you're saying not to throw out, that to realize that there's this idea of this idea of what we could call liberty. We could call it freedom or a free free market there's something to it yeah it's this entrepreneurial idea and i think it works in science because in science it's all about a debate between experts using facts in democracy it's all supposed to be about a debate between experts using facts and in capitalism it's also a debate between experts using facts so we have this kind of triple whammy of democracy science uh and uh human rights and this makes it, and, and capitalism, which makes it that uh, none of our competitors are able to do this, can, can beat us because China can adopt some of the trappings of capitalism, but they silence their scientists. They silence dissidents politically. They're never going to have the intellectual robustness uh, that we've managed to create in this country. That's why we beat the USSR in the Cold War. I think that you and I could probably talk for hours. But then again, I seem to be saying that I have so many interesting people that I get to talk to on this program. I'm really grateful for your spending time. And as I said, I do hope we can get a little bit more juice behind behind Not Stolen. It definitely deserves it. Yeah. And uh, I'm looking forward to staying in touch with you. Thanks so much, Ron. Thanks again. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.